Welcome back to the present stage, Conversations with Theatre Writers. My name is Dan Rubens, and I'm a theatre critic, a composer, and an arts nonprofit leader. Happy New Year, and welcome back after a brief hiatus for the podcast. My guest today is Gordon Greenberg, the director and co-author of Dracula, a Comedy of Terrors, currently running off-Broadway at New World Stages until January 7th. Gordon Greenberg, welcome to the present stage. Thank you, Dan. I'm happy to be here. Uh, so starting out talking about Dracula Comedy of Terrors, I want to know a little bit more about sort of your previous experience with the Dracula story, the novel, other adaptations, and sort of what your uh, journey to your own version of the story was. I have to be honest. Um, I was not overly familiar with Dracula. I'd seen it when I was a kid. Um, I think in the late 70s, or early 80s, um, uh, Frank Langella did the play on Broadway. And it was a very cool production, as I recall. I didn't fully understand it um, because it it had no singing. And <laughs> when you're a kid, all you get is like the visceral gateway drug of musicals. Right. <laughs> um, but it had an Edward Gorey um, scenic uh, environment, which I loved. And my parents seemed compelled by it. Um, and I knew that it was, um, it was a classic story. Uh, so when we were, um, given the opportunity, myself and my co-writer, Steve Rosen, the opportunity to create uh, a new Dracula, um, we, uh, both jumped at the chance primarily because it's so serious. Um, and for us as comic writers, we always look for anything that takes itself incredibly seriously. Um, and that's the easiest thing to poke fun at. So, um, you know, the last show we did um, this past summer uh, as a commission for the Old Globe in San Diego was uh, Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment, um, a comedy. Uh, and it was so much fun to, to, to make fun of all of Russian literature. But likewise, um, the very... Um, sort of macabre and intense and serious world of Dracula um, seem ripe for sending up. Now, I, I have to, I know intellectually, I know that Mel Brooks has done one. I know lots of people have made fun of Dracula in different ways, but I never saw any of them, interestingly. So this really was our attempt to not only find the humor in it, um, and some other veins, um, no pun intended, of humanity in it, um, but a theatricality uh, whereby we could tell the story using a small group of actors that would be transformational and then could jump back and forth between uh, roles and uh, genders and uh, costumes and locations very quickly and uh, with great... Uh, um, dexterousness and audacity. And that was a big part of, of inventing the show. Um, it also is um, at the same time as being uh, sort of a very silly iteration. Um, we also wanted to hang on to something underneath that was compelling about the original material, um, which was um, a sort of uh, gender questioning, life questioning. There are big, big thoughts underneath this story um, that Bram Stoker, the more research I did into him, the more I understood that, you know, he um, in many ways lived a lonely and circumspect life. 
Um, he was married, but um, by all accounts, he was uh, a queer person living closeted, um, longing to be involved in the theater and the arts and managing um, the uh, Lyceum Theater in London, which is where Lion King is playing now, if you've been there, um, Covent Garden, giant theater. But he came into contact with all sorts of literary greats, um, including Oscar Wilde, including Walt Whitman. And these are people that he struck up. Uh, relationships with, whether in in life or epistolary, um, but his communications with them were a lot of what sustained and inspired him to write Dracula. Um, and there are pieces of the book that are reflected in um, experiences that he even even had. Oscar Wilde, you know, around the time this was written in Victorian London, Oscar Wilde was about to you know, be sentenced for gross indecency and had had those trials. And knowing that he was vulnerable and considered vampiric by many, um, he kept several residences around London so as not to arouse suspicion um, with himself and his uh, boyfriend at the time, Bosey. Uh, that is a part of Dracula. Dracula keeps several residences around London. And there are lots of, of connections that can be made that I found fascinating. So those are there underneath um, the this sort of silly romp of, of a play that involves puppet sex and <laughs> lots of anachronism and uh, uh, fake blood and fangs and all the silly things that... Um, that you look for if you're going to um, go see Dracula comedy of terrors in New York. And I'm, I'd love to learn more hearing you talk about sort of how, uh, how much you thought about both the, the what's expressed and unexpressed by Stoker and the text, but also just sort of your interest in sort of what sort of keeping a sort of truthful vein, so to speak um, in the, in the piece um, sort of how do you strike that balance both as writer and you directed the show as well. So sort of thinking about how to how to send something up and, and keep the humor flowing throughout while also uh, sort of striking that balance and, and finding sort of that compelling storytelling at the same time. For sure. Um, it's it's interesting because I think um, any comedy still needs to be based in truth and um truth is relative as we know um everyone has a different truth and um the sense of reality and the sense of where the ground is what are the what are the parameters for our world um are uh is rather um is essential if you're um hoping to set up an evening that people will go with you and and um sort of take the ride um, and they kind of have to believe in the circumstances enough to find them funny. Um, otherwise, it's a sketch and it lasts 12 minutes. Um, it's funny because the very first version of this that we ever wrote before the pandemic um, had lots of silly people in it. Among them, Arnie, um, uh, who is Arnie Burton, um, who plays the dual roles of Mina and Van Helsing, um, has he was with it at the very beginning and not in the interim stages, but um, that was a script that everyone picked up and said, oh, it's hilarious. Um, and it was 90 minutes. And after about 
25 minutes, all the laughs stopped and it was eerie. Like the rest of the reading, it was just quiet. Um, and I just thought they're exhausted. They have no, it's having donuts for dinner. Like there's, there's no salad. Right. There's no, you know, there has to be something else to sustain this being. Um, so then we started talking about what's underneath this and what makes it more than just a sketch, a silliness. Um, and some people could scoff and look at it and say, we're not supposed to actually give a shit. Are we about these people? Um, but on a certain level, you do you see it. People gasp when he kisses Jonathan. People laugh um, when he makes an excuse to Lucy. It's because they care because they're invested enough and they wouldn't laugh otherwise. And that's humor that comes from character and situation as opposed to just jokes, um, um, of which there are many as well. Um, but you kind of need both to sustain it. And that took us years of writing it and rewriting and digging, excavating, looking underneath and writing too much of that and then doing away with it. Um, and just finding that delicate balance of where do you stop a beat to say, this is interesting, this is hot, this is um, something that is worth thinking about and worth looking at um, for just a moment before we go back to the silliness and pull the, you know, pull the rug out again. Um, but those were things we took seriously. And, and really what this is about in the end is a couple that are about to get married. It's Jonathan and Lucy. And you can see from the beginning, she's kind of questioning, am I making the right choice? I've been with him forever. So even finding that, figuring out in our version that Lucy, the heroine, has been engaged to Jonathan and who's been a fixture in the house forever. Um, he knew her mother who's passed away. Everyone's always assumed they get married, but they're very different people. Um, and even they, even though they love each other, I think they're both at this moment of thinking, are we doing this just because, just because there's enough, um, there's enough uh, kind of forward movement um, and, and, uh, we just don't want to take the wind out of our sails or are we doing this because we still believe it's the right thing. Um, and into that uncertainty, um, as if he could smell it, um, sails Dracula, um, who, um, does everything he can to pull them apart because he's decided Lucy is, uh, one of the first women to say no to him. And of course that makes him even more interested. Um, and he even has a bit of a thing for Jonathan because he's sort of, you know, this equal opportunity seducer. But I do think most of his seduction of Jonathan is about prying him loose so he can get back to Lucy. Um, uh, but it's interesting that his um, sense of uh, vulnerability, Dracula's, is so acute that he can feel that this couple, there's a little bit of space there and he can wedge them even further. Mm -hmm. But by him coming in and challenging both of them, they reassert their uh, their love for one another and understand that having been through this little um, trial by Dracula, that um, they wanna be with each other for sure more than ever before. And that Dracula ultimately, um, uh, for a man who has had everything he wants all his life, we think of him as uh, almost a Matt Healy, you know, from the 1975. He's right. this, you know, he, he's just, he's a rock star um, who has all the sex, money, 
meals, travel, anything he could want materially in any way, but it starts to feel hollow and empty and sad. And so he's just looking to prey on the people that have that thing inside of them, that truth, that fulfillment, that substance. Um, and he, it takes him the entire show to understand that what he wants is soul, humanity, <laughs> a thing that he's missing. Um, and I won't go into more detail because I don't want to spoil it for people, but this sure. is what's under <laughs> But I, I'm making it sound like, you know, this is a Chekhovian play, but um, it's that's just what's underneath and it's the foundation. You know, you can walk into a beautiful um, house that's decorated in pink marble everywhere, but and you're not thinking, hopefully, about the foundation. And in terms of the the book, the source text as foundation, did you how much did you refer to the book throughout the adaptation process? Did you have it open in front of you as you went or did you kind of say, OK, that's the story we're going to we're going to just have fun and leave this behind? And mostly it was a riff on that. I think um, we read it, talked about it, took some notes and then forgot about it. And then it, it seeps into your consciousness. So there are moments like me or uh, Lucy Suter's. Um, who were there and we thought oh it'd be fun to have a texan it'll just be so arbitrary right. and we realized oh that's in the book that's where we <laughs> sometimes we forgot um, yeah but yes there are these little homages um that that jump out but we obviously we changed the names we we futzed around with some of um the genders um and then within that changed the gender of the people playing that other gender um just to really keep question marks in the air and keep people um thinking about how they, you know, how we are preconditioned to view someone. Um, there's a lot of sort of jokes and gags about misogyny. <laughs> um, and we thought, you know, to have um, a hyper misogynist, chauvinist male character um, played by a woman would be a lot more fun. <laughs> so <Yeah. laughs> we kind of went with that um, and then looked for opportunities for everyone to kind of flip um and and comment uh from outside of themselves on uh what it means to be a woman or a man or meant rather in victorian england and i'm curious sort of following up on that and in the script the note the show note at the beginning says the show lovingly sends up gender norms and and one question i had was sort of as a director and as a writer um a lot of shows in recent years have been criticized for sort of having the joke be a man in a dress like Tootsie or Mrs. Doubtfire and sort of how mm -hmm. do you find that balance between sort of sending up gender norms um, without making the joke just this is someone playing a different gender? Well, I think Arnie, um, who in particular is a man in a dress, um, and, and, and Steve and myself, um, all thought long and hard about what makes this character funny. And you'll note that, you know, his understudies are male and female. Um, so it can be played by anything. But um, in the case of both of them, they have uh, character traits um, that that cause uh, challenges for them in life. You know, one of them um, is so very thirsty and so kind of, you know, desperate to be everything she's not. She's like, you know, kind of, that person who's always pounding on closed doors. So I want whoever doesn't want me. Um, and uh, it's tragic in some ways and, and watching her try so, so, so hard is, is hilarious. And that's the source of comedy. Um, and if anything, I think 
the the funniest part is that um it's a person much older than 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 the sister and yeah. that's where most of the laughs come from um the man in the dress jokes i think would be much more basic and um that's not something we ever went for and i don't think it, it really exists in the show so much um he is a hilarious comic genius <laughs> um who definitely plays you know and a much older person who's trying to be young and frilly it's closer it's almost closer to in if you've ever seen um mommy dearest when um uh joan crawford uh insists on filling in for her daughter christina on her soap opera when christina's mm-hmm. in the hospital and you've got this 70 year old woman pretending to be a lovely 25 right. year old <laughs> uh, that's sort of closer to where the humor. yeah comes from um it's someone putting on an ill-fitting suit um and then of course as van helsing she's also a woman he's also a woman but um he is uh playing a humorless loveless person um who ultimately melts to the charms of uh dr westfeld our our widower um and uh yeah there also i think there's a it's a very different um it's a different joke. And it's something I've thought about a lot. My partner is um, uh, a physician who deals with a lot of transgender um, adolescents, in fact. So we talk about gender and and the evolving um, perspectives on it in the world. And so this very intentionally doesn't take any stands or really make a statement per se, other than to make you question um how you see it and i think everyone will have different questions based on what they're what they're seeing on stage it's kind of like when i was a kid i remember seeing um carol churchill's cloud nine um which also used a lot of gender flipping um and was one of the first times that i did start to think about all of these uh givens that we um, grow up with and that are embedded in our, in our consciousness. Um, and then you start to say, why other than convenience yeah. <laughs> and comfort with the familiar? Um, what, what are the questions and how do we, uh, how do we enlarge our sense of what it means to be a man or a woman um, and maybe um, make them even broader, more welcoming, um you know groups you mentioned that that role is understudied by actors of multiple genders i'm curious just in general as you've done i'm now several productions of the play whether the sort of the casting breakdown has looked differently in different in different productions and also sort of how much the play is sort of reimagined on the actors you have uh every time you do it Funny. Uh, I mean, we do in the play itself um, say that it, any any of the roles can be played by people of any gender or age or ability or ethnicity or whatever. Um, this is this is about actors. Ultimately, it starts with actors telling a story. Um, so we we underline the theatricality, the um, you know sort of one might say Brechtian nature of it, where we're announcing that this is a play from the beginning. So it gives you uh license and uh you know sort of rope to to do whatever you want with it and i've seen some of the there are some smaller productions that have popped up quickly um in this there was a tiny 
gap between when it, this play got published by um, Sam French and Concord um, and when everything happened because of the pandemic, we had scheduled the New York production and then it kind of went away a little bit um, and then it got published and then the production came back. And then obviously they, that's the moment where they stop. Uh, um, uh, they do a hold back on productions because we've got to see what happens here. And this production will probably tour um, so in that little window where people were able to grab it really quickly, a bunch of small theaters around the country, um, did get the rights. And if you Google it, you'll see there's some very silly versions and they're, they're definitely lower production values. And in, um, uh, it, it looks like, I don't know most of the theaters, they may be local theaters, community theaters, small professional theaters. Um, but I've just, from the few that I've taken a look at, there are, men, women, people of all ages playing everything, including Dracula. Um, and I'm sure there are um, gains and losses to every decision. So I, I have always felt like you've got to go with the strongest actors that you have and see what they do really well and then try to showcase that. And that's kind of what we did with this cast um, and with pretty much every cast we've had. But this, you know, this is an extraordinary group of actors um, and they all really understand the style and embraced it um, and um, have contributed greatly to um, the success of this production. I listened last night to the radio play version of the show, which is on the Broadway Podcast Network um, and was released as a benefit for the Actors Fund in Spring, May 2020, like quite yeah, early right, in, right the, in the heat yeah. of the moment, <laughs> um, and features among other things Annalee Ashford sort of warming up her Cockney accent for Mrs. Lovett, <laughs> and and Laura Benanti doing kind of a, a something in the realm of her Melania Trump voice. Um, so a lot of enjoyable performances on there. I'm curious to know more in adapting the play for a radio play format, and then adapting it back out of it in, in subsequent stage production, sort of what you learned from that experience that sort of has stuck. Certainly the sound design, sound effects in the production are really significant. And I know that was sort of always part of the intent, but curious if sort of designing the show or reimagining the show for an auditory only experience sort of shifted where what it's become now. Well, it's funny because we when we were developing this, the first theater that did it was a theater in Florida, um, not far from where my parents live. And um, we did a reading and my father had never seen a reading of a play. So he called it our radio play. Because he <laughs> thought it was like like Woody Allen's radio days, right. they were holding scripts and standing at microphones and music stands. Um, and I kept saying, no, it's just a, it's a play. <laughs> and then the pandemic happened and I thought it's a radio play. <laughs> um, and so we, um, you know, sort of embraced the genre to some extent and added an announcer and um, uh, and thought about the visuals that they were going to be missing and how we could make up for that. Um, and then, of course, rather than having, um, you know, because you're not getting the joy of watching four actors play 50 roles um, and all the physicality that comes with it, there's a different joy that you get, which is just listening to this cavalcade of Broadway stars, um, right. playing, uh, all of these small roles. We had, you know, a full cast there of, I don't know, 15 or 20 people. Um, 
And that was a lot of fun. But as we did it, although we were adjusting to the format and thinking, how can we present this in the most fun way um, that's just auditory, we're also, again, examining the story. Um, so it took all of these productions, all these times of going through it and really thinking about not only what's funny, but what's actually happening. Like, what what is this about uh, and you'd be surprised how easy it is to lose the forest for the trees, you know, as you're trying to like fix a laugh or hone a moment. Um, it's hard sometimes to pull back and say, um, are we sure that we're, this is what that character actually wants to do at this moment? Or are we just doing that because we thought it would be funny? Um, and occasionally you think it would be funny enough that it's worth taking a left turn um, just as an amuse-bouche, as it were. Um, but uh, frequently you say, this is silly. We don't need to pursue that. Let's let's stay on mission, right. stay on story. And sort of along those lines, I was curious, we talked about sort of striking a balance between story and parody, but also I'm curious just within the humor, sort of how do you sort of find the, the beats where between sort of the design related jokes where you have like funny sound designs funny lighting cues and like sight gags uh and and also so many like sort of meta performance gags like i think for me one of the funniest moments is where you have an actor who exits screaming and then re-enters mid-screen as the scream transforms enters as another character um versus sort of the like textual situational humor um how do you sort of like find the rhythms of what kind of jokes how many jokes of a certain kind you can have in a row or something like that. Yeah. It's kind of trial and error. I mean, the, the, like the meta jokes like that we have, I mean, obviously that same actor has another thing later where she's just spinning and becoming, you know, going back and forth from character to right. character. And finally is, is so dizzy that she <laughs> tumbles um, to, to uh, a bench. Um, but, uh, and then, and then there are the, the jokes like that, that come from story. But uh, I think, I think we have just with each production sort of felt in our, you know, inner barometer where it, where something um, maybe is um, overstaying its welcome, or we have more of a certain flavor than we want or need um, and trying to, you know, trying to mitigate that and essentialize and, you know, my favorite expression, um, I don't even know who said this. It might have been Sam Johnson or Boswell or someone, but if I had the time, I would have written a shorter letter. Um, <laughs> it really speaks to the process of writing a play or writing anything or even packing your suitcase for vacation. Right. <laughs> it, I feel that too. Yeah. It takes time to essentialize. And that's kind of what we've been doing is like trying to take away things that are not absolutely necessary. And sometimes that means killing your darlings, but um, we've, we've got a lot of discarded scenes and jokes and monologues and ideas. Um, and we're left with um, hopefully something that is taught and um, delightful and uh, a little bit thoughtful and feels like it's worth your time. I'd love to hear a little bit more about your co-writing process, what that collaboration has looked like, especially as you've begun directing productions and continued sort of evolving the show, um, how, have, how have your roles in that collaboration sort of changed over time? 
It's, I mean, it is really rewarding. And Steve and I usually like approach these things like we're doing a TV show um, in that, you know, if you're writing a TV show, you're all, all, all the writers become a unit where you're all sort of influencing the physicality of the show, the design, the, the aesthetic, the sensibility. Um, and Steve and I both kind of together dream that up. And I, because I have background, because uh, I am a director, um, while we're writing it, I'm usually sort of guiding us in directions um, that I think will give us lots of opportunity for play. Um, I don't figure out on a granular level what that's going to mean, but I'll say, let's make these suitors puppets and then we'll do something fun. I'll figure out what that means later. Um, or, uh, you know, let's, let's, they'll have some kind of puppet sex. Well, I'll make something funny happen in, in the carriage. I'll figure that out later. Like you just know worlds. Um, or, I mean, I remember the very beginning of this, I was like, we need to have a hunt across London. I know that I want to get to that and it's going to be a sequence and I don't know how it's going to work, but at some point I want it to be big. I want to have the ship. I want to, you know, I don't want it to all be set in a drawing room the way, you know, the Frank Langella Dracula was, that was all, you know, almost like the mousetrap. Um, and I also know that the bigger and more epic the story you're trying to tell with the smaller, the group and and the budget, the more fun it is. Um, so those are fundamental um, goals and areas that I aim for. Um, but again, when we're writing, we let ourselves dream and go as far as possible. And when we're, um, or when I'm into directing, um, I usually kind of stay in the director's hat and then either on a break, um, I'll go to Steve or at night, we'll have a moment and, you know, sort of zoom, or if he's there with me, wherever we're working on it, we'll get together and, um, talk through questions or come up with ideas and it's, uh, yeah, it's a really great, um, collaboration that we have. And I'm, I'm very, very grateful for it. Um, both as a friend and an artist and, a um, a talented person. We have very similar backgrounds, um, and, and yet different sensibilities. Um, uh, so there's enough to balance each other out, but it's a, it's a good writing collaboration. And we do generally, when we're writing right in the same room or at least on zoom together. Um, whereas I have other collaborators, um, that I've worked with in TV and in other art forms where I'll write a draft, send it to them. They'll do, you know, a pass. And then I do another pass and it's just sort of back and forth. But with Steve, I guess, cause so much of it is comedic. We want to make each other laugh. Um, so if, if that's not working, you also have to get to the point where it's okay to hear an idea and another idea. And I go, uh, we could do better. And then I'll, I'll sort of put myself out there and say, oh, this would be hilarious if we do that. And I look at him and he's got the face you have right now. And I'll go, okay, that doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, like I'll know if he's like not cracking up, I'm like, okay, next I'll try another one. But we both are very, um, are willing to put ourselves out there. My final question for you is not about Dracula, but is about another show that you worked on uh, some years ago. Um, I one the first shows one of the first shows that I reviewed as a critic was the UK premiere of Working, um, which you I know that you oh that's so funny advising um, at the Southwark Playhouse, um, and it's also a musical that I had 
been in like a middle school production of so have a lot of affection for um so we're just really curious to hear about your experience working on working um and sort of bringing <laughs> new life into it um because that was a, a a very cool revision um and was exciting to see sort of how the piece has continued to uh, have, that's so have funny well, I did working, you know, when I was a kid at Stage Door Manor at my camp. Um, and so I've been obsessed with it forever. Yeah. Um, and we started to um, uh, sort of dream up this new version. Stephen Schwartz and I had worked on The Baker's Wife, um, and which we're doing again next summer at the Menier Chocolate Factory in London, which will be really fun. So you got to come back and review that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but after we worked on it, um, we, uh, uh, I said, he said, what's next? And I said, well, I have an idea about working on working, um, because what it lacks is a protagonist, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to keep people with the show, um, for two and a half hours when it's just vignettes. Um, and I said, I think we should make it shorter. We should make it a small cast. I mean, kind of, are you sensing a theme, um, yeah. <laughs> that these actors will be sort of changing in front of our eyes so much so that they become almost the protagonist. It's like a marathon for them to get through the evening. And you're watching the core center of humanity that is consistent, even as the trappings are changing for each one. So I thought it, it would be interesting to put the housewife next to the hooker and make them the same actor. Um, and then um, we went to, uh, initially we were going to do this at Ars Nova, which was also part of why it was small. It was going to be even smaller because um, I've worked with Ars Nova forever. I started the theater. It's a small, I don't know if you know it, small uh, development yeah. theater in New York. Um, and we went to, and at the time, so we were going to develop it there. And then another theater in Florida um, called, they had seen um, Jacques Brel, which is like the first big show I did in New York off Broadway. And they said, we'd love for you to come do that here in Florida. And I mean, it's like, well, I already did it in New York. I'd like to do something new. I like doing new things. Um, can I interest you in this idea? And at that time, I think we already got Lynn Manuel to say that he would write some new stuff. So they were like, sure, we'll do it. Um, and that was where we developed it. And then it went on to, we did it at the Old Globe in San Diego, which has since become kind of my creative home. Um, and then it ran for over a year in Chicago, at Broadway in Chicago. Then it came to New York. So over all of those productions, we developed this, um sort of small cast version um where the actors themselves were a part of it and you're aware um i used the at the chicago historical society they gave me access to the original onion skin transcripts that studs had typed wow. out on. <laughs> i started weeping i have I to mean, say yeah i <laughs> I, I feel like you have a similar connection. Yeah, connection to the show, absolutely. Literally, in his red magic marker, I saw him yeah. serve, it's an art on the like the waitress. Wow. And I'm getting like goosebumps right now. I'm yeah. talking about it because I know it so well. And then I found the recordings of those people, like his recordings with them. Wow. We used the recordings, and even the opening number became a cacophony rather than, you know. The, the sounds of a city, I guess, on the original album, it was one recording and another recording and another. And the stage, I don't know if you saw our version, but the stage was all reel to reel, you know, those 1970s things. So like one went and another and another and another while there were actors in dressing rooms and then they started mouthing along with them. And then you sort of understood that we're taking something off the page and lifting it right. into the theatrical sphere. Um, So... 
I hope I've answered your question. <laughs> I don't know. No, I, yeah. I think the question was just, I'd love to learn more about what that process was like. So absolutely. Yeah. That's where it came from. And I yeah. still have the recording somewhere in MP3s. Um, but uh, when it went to London, I wasn't really connected to it, but I do know um, Siobhan Harrison, who I adore, had just been in um, Guys and Dolls for me. I directed the revival at Chichester, which then played at the Savoy and then with Rebel Wilson at the Phoenix. Um, and Siobhan was uh, Sarah there um, and such a lovely actor. Um, and she was so, I mean, particularly her American was amazing, but um, also just her stylistically she had an almost American vibe to her you know there's a certain there's a love for theatricality in a lot of British performances which I dig I mean the chewing of the scenery I'm, I'm into that I love acting with a capital A is so much fun um, and Siobhan was a little more uh, shall we say um, subtle nuance particularly uh, with as an American and in a show that can be as broad as um, Guys and Dolls can be so when she was cast in working there um, I was particularly happy because I just thought how great that she's getting to do this and we had a little back and forth and um, anyway I I never saw it but um, I heard it was really terrific and it, I yeah so that glad. whole cast was phenomenal yeah yeah Amazing. Well, I love working in London and um, I think uh, it's a joy to to be able to send stuff back and forth, um, New yeah. York, London and so forth. Sounds like an exciting baker's wife on the on the horizon, too. Oh, it's um, going to be cool. Yeah, I'm, I'm very much looking forward to it. Um, well, thank you so much for uh, reminiscing about your working experience and also sharing so much about Dracula Comedy of Terrors. And uh, yeah, thank you so much for joining the podcast today. My pleasure. Thanks, Dan. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Present Stage Conversations with Theater Writers. We'll be back streaming on Fridays coming up in January. And you can follow along at the present stage on Instagram. Give us a review, uh, a five-star rating wherever you listen to podcasts. And please share with a friend and keep going to theater. Have a great day.